My name is Casey Cease, and I have the joy of serving as a lead pastor of Preaching and Vision here at Christ Community Church, and uh, we're continuing through the Gospel of Mark. One of the reasons, not the only reasons, but one of the reasons we do what's called expository preaching through books of the Bible is because it forces us to be confronted with and teach through difficult passages in Scripture. Um, A lot of times, if you're solely doing topical studies, it's very easy to jump around to preferential parts of the Bible, but you miss out on sitting with, going through, and pressing into more difficult aspects of God's Word. And as we come trusting in God through His Holy Spirit to shine a light on our truth, we are coming together realizing our deep need for Him and dependence on Him to bring clarity and vision and direction from his word. And so today we're continuing in some apocalyptic literature in Mark chapter 13. One of my friends here, she uh, sent me a message, said, hey, uh, is this week the abomination of desolation? And I could hear almost, it seemed like Lauren had a little, little bit of a giggle in her tone um, as she was asking me that because it's not a light passage whatsoever. Certain passage of like, do unto others as you would have them do to you. I mean, we can, we can rock that thing all day long. When we like talking about wives, submit to your husbands, as to the Lord. You ladies love that one. That's your favorite. Like you wear t-shirts that says, I submit. Uh, I'm kidding. You don't. But uh, I mean, so certain passages are more direct. Then you get an apocalyptic literature and it's, it's more, it has more depth and nuance. It requires history. And so what I love about the Christian faith is that it's not only um, consistent and ongoing, but there are historians that don't believe that Jesus was Messiah who has affirmed a lot of these things. And so we have a Savior that has entered into time and space. And we can look back on historical instances throughout real-life history and see the fulfillment of these promises being made. And so my hope today as we go into the abomination of desolation, not only would it affirm and strengthen your faith on what has already occurred, but it would send your vision forward towards what we will expect to come. And In that thinking, we will be able to really have a deeper appreciation for when we talk about God's glory and the faithful of God's son, faithfulness of God's son. So just to catch us back up to where we are, the last chapter or two, Jesus has been confronting religious leaders. He's been having confrontations in the temple. He's run into the Pharisees who are these self-righteous, blue-collar, by-the-book legalists, as we would call them, who really believed in the law of God and believed in the the coming Messiah and believed in the resurrection of the dead, um, but they did not believe that Jesus was Messiah because he was taking their beliefs and turning it on their ear and expanding it so much and so he would constantly have run-ins with this group of jewish people the pharisees you also see the sadducees who are deeply entrenched politically with the romans and so they enjoyed favor and power with the culture around them you see the scribes and the priests who run authority over the temple and use their authority and power to leverage people to get what they want and so jesus coming in talking about the destruction of this temple is very offensive to this group of people because for every one of these people the temple represents the 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 source of any hope for future power that they might have, and this false belief that that is what has given them power currently. And so when he talks about destroying the temple, we might say, well, historically, we know what happened, we know what's going to happen, but we don't have as much emotionally charged. So, So when Mark says, let the reader understand, Jesus' first audience when he came was to the Jewish people. 
being the fulfillment of the Jewish promises. And as God initiated covenant with the Jewish people that they would be a blessing to all nations through his covenant with Abraham, we can see throughout biblical history and real history how he has used other nations to bring about judgment on his people to bring them to repentance and restoration. And Jesus is foretelling how that will happen again in this passage. For them, the temple is a place where they would have illustration of power and hope for future power. But for God, the temple was always a place where mankind came to be restored to God through sacrifice and worship. The temple was always a place where humanity was called to come and acknowledge the otherness, the holiness, the powerful nature of who God is to give worth and value and focus and life and attention to him and to receive from him his power, protection, and provision. That was always God's intent, but man's intent has always skewed it. And so Brent had done a wonderful job last week of building up what we're looking at here. I want to talk just briefly to give you an idea of apocalyptic literature, and especially as it pertains in Mark, okay? Apocalyptic really is that idea of the end of the world or the end of an era, a complete idea of destruction. And so when you're, when you're reading apocalyptic literature, you have to read it specifically in, in certain ways. Um, in the Gospel of Mark, apocalyptic literature first possesses historical significance, it's always based and grounded in a historical context. So it's not just this future idea, ethereal, big picture idea. It's something that has happened or something that will happen. Jesus is either bringing explanation to what has happened or pointing towards what indeed will happen. Okay, and so that's something that's important when we read the Bible. The challenge with, with understanding the Bible is the first thing we have to understand is context, meaning what's going on around it, what's going on in it and through it. And so there's always an apocalyptic literature in the Gospel of Mark, a historical significance. And the apocalyptic idea is always eschatological in its thrust, meaning talking about last things or end things. So when, when you read apocalyptic literature, you have to understand he's always speaking towards last things or end things. Number three, it's pessimistic in nature. Like the outlook isn't good. When you, when, when, you, when you read Jesus in the Gospel of Mark, he's not like, but guys, you're, it's going to get better for you. If you just keep trying harder, keep pushing through, it's always like, look, it's going to be destroyed. You're going to be destroyed. You're going to be scattered. Some of you think you're in, but you're out. Like, if you go read the Gospels, you're like, man, I just love how encouraging the Bible is. You go read it and be like, yikes. The hope that we have isn't in our ability to get better or do better. The hope in the Bible is found in God himself as the object and source and hope for our joy and restoration in him, not our ability to make ourselves good. And the Jewish people believed that their religion was about them performing specific things so that they could make themselves right with God. Number four, the apocalyptic literature in the Gospel of Mark contains visions. And in here, in this passage we're reading here, he's referring back to the book of Daniel, chapter 11 and chapter 12, but he's also looking forward to what will happen in time and space and history. Number five is a strong element of symbolism. You'll see Jesus talking about days and numbers and symbols and times. Symbolism is often used in, in the Hebrew mindset. Um, you know, number seven is a complete number. The idea of Satan being 666 is six is one less short than perfect. And, and Satan is the one that brings deception away from that which is perfect. 
So there's a lot of numerical symbolism throughout biblical literature, but also we see it in the Gospel of Mark. Apocalyptic literature always has dramatic emphasis. One of the great tools of drama that Jesus likes to use is a hyperbole, meaning an ex- exaggerated statement for the purpose of emphasizing a point. If your eye causes it to stumble, don't close it, chop it out. That's what Jesus says. Right? If, if we right, think about that, if we dealt with all of the things on our body that cause us to sin, we would be a stump on a cart. I heard someone say something, but yeah. You feel like, no, no, you're like, my hand, my eye, my mouth, uh, right? Yeah, I mean, there's like, but he uses hyperbole, an expanded statement, an exaggerated statement to emphasize his point, to grab the listener's attention. And lastly, we see in apocalyptic literature in the Gospel of Mark and really throughout the New Testament is a secret language type of mindset or esoteric. It, it means that it's like insider language. Some get it, some don't. It's revealed to those who it's meant to be revealed, but it's kept secret from those who are not meant to understand it. So it's not an all-inclusive, easy to understand, laid out simply for everybody, but rather it's an idea that these apocalyptic statements are dividing, it's separating, it's winnowing, it's threshing out the wheat from the chaff. So there was a previous abomination of desolation. In Daniel chapter 11, it points towards this abomination of desolation. In, in 168 B.C., in Antiochus IV, he called himself Antiochus Epiphanes, because Epiphany means illustrious one or God manifest. So, so God, so Jesus is, is pointing back partly to this abomination of desolation previously. During this time, uh, in, in about 168 B.C., the, the Jewish people were split. You had the Hellenists who were completely entrenched in the, Greek, um, in the Greek culture, and then you had the traditionalists who were trying to obey God's word. Antiochus brought in a group of people. They raided the temple. They, they stole the treasures. They set up an altar to the Greek god Zeus, and they slaughtered a pig on the altar, which is a big no-no, a hoofed pig is unclean to the Jewish person. And what they did is they brought him in, they erected a false god and made an altar to this god in correction and rebuke of God's people being removed from God's holy presence and place, which Daniel had foretold and which was being fulfilled. And during that time, he killed many Jewish people. He outlawed circumcision, which is a big ritual on the eighth day for a Jewish young man, a little boy. And it forced Jews to eat pork. There are even stories that Jews were eating their young because they couldn't find food to eat. It was a horrible, horrendous, offensive time. And so when Jesus is talking about the abomination of desolation for those who come from a very uh, rich tradition of historical knowledge of their past, it would evoke in them this sense of rejection, the sense of fear, the sense of um, isolation, and they're either going to have to listen to what this guy says and adjust course, or they're going to have to reject what he says outright. And while what Antiochus did certainly was a fulfillment of Daniel 11, Jesus indicates there is still a future fulfillment. There are many different ways that people like to read apocalyptic literature, eschatology, which means last things. One of the things that we talk about in our membership class is that we don't split over eschatology. That's an open-handed issue, primarily because it's something that has not happened yet. We have not come into the end in times. It's very difficult to be an expert on something that hasn't yet happened. 
However, it is, uh, is something to evoke in us a trusting of God, curiosity as we come in. But as even Jesus says, no one knows a day or time of God's ultimate return. And so what I hold to is an eschatology called already but not fully yet. It's an already not yet where some of these things are meant to be, as Jesus says, in his life. And they're also pointing to a richer fulfillment of it upon his literal return. And so we have to have some grip and understanding of eschatology last things because we need to live towards the end in mind. If we're not living as believers with the end in mind, then we're going to start living with our agenda in mind rather than God's. And so it's important to press into these things. But the big picture idea I hope for you to see as we draw through this is that the power of God makes holy that which is unholy through Jesus Christ. So as we talk about the temple and the destruction of the temple and the removal of the temple, this is what God is teaching to his Jewish people first. And what he's saying to his church now, that he is the one that has made a way for unholy things to become holy, for sinful and broken things to be forgiven, accepted, and made new. He has made the way, and that's why he is worthy of our hope and of our worship. So turn with me in Mark chapter 13, beginning in verse 20. Jesus had already talked about the signs of the coming end of the age. He has already given warnings of war and rumors of war and things, uprisings, but saying this is merely birthing pains. For those of you that have had babies, Braxton Hicks, false contractions, a preparation but not yet near the end. Things like this are happening. Hey, people right now are like, Hey, we're almost there. Now, as soon as this nuclear war breaks out with this country or that country, then we know that Christ is going to come um, through the mushroom cloud on his horse with his leg tattoo, and he's going to make all things right. And so we're trying to know more than what God knows him or what Jesus knows himself. In Acts chapter 1, he says, I don't even know the day or time. Don't worry about that. What we need to worry about is being my representatives, right? But we pick up here in John 13. He's warning them to be on guard. He's warning them to watch, be mindful of their children. He's, he's encouraging them that, hey, when you're brought in front of the synagogues, in front of the rulers, that the Spirit of God will give you words to say. But we pick up in verse 14. But when you see the abomination of desolation, when you see the abomination of desolation standing where he ought not be, let the reader understand. So he's speaking first to the context immediately there, the Jewish listener who understands Jewish history and gives them something that they might be realizing or will be realizing some of them in their life. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let the one who is on the housetop not go down nor enter his house to take anything out. And let the one who is in the field not turn back to take his cloak. And alas, for women who are pregnant and for those who are nursing infants in those days, pray that it may not happen in winter. For in those days there will be such tribulation as has not been from the beginning of the creation that God created until now and never will be. And if the Lord had not cut short the days, no human being would be saved but for the sake of the elect whom he chose. He shortened the days. This abomination of desolation, this great desecration of that which was holy, the holy place of Jewish gathering in the temple where there would be a place for God's elect chosen people to go and commune with God. Jesus is telling them that will once again be desecrated. While it had been over 100 years since it had happened last, it was still recent enough for them to have known 
fully what that meant and what that intended. It's like someone saying, as it was with Pearl Harbor, so it would be in this place or that. An extremely surprised attack that was devastating and demolishing numbers, or for a Japanese person, like it was in Hiroshima or Nagasaki. Without warning or notice, boom, evaporated and poisoned by radiation. Leveraging that historical situation that was believed to be on, that God surely would protect His own people from that again. And Jesus is telling them, this will happen again. It will come without warning. And my prayer is that it would not cause great devastation. And so He's giving those who are believing in Him and following Him instructions that when they see this coming, when they see the Romans entrenching around Jerusalem or Israel, what they should do and how they should respond. He says, flee to the mountains. The people during the Maccabean Revolt would have understood what that is. The Maccabean Revolt raised up because of Antiochus IV when he came in and desolated and defamed the temple. Then the group called the Maccabeans, the traditionalists, came back and revolted against him and sieged war on the Romans. And they would go into the mountains and prepare guerrilla warfare and then come in and eventually they flushed him out and they rebuilt the temple. And so Jesus is saying, hey, in the same way that the Maccabeans went into the mountains and found cover in the mountains, prepare to go and preserve yourselves again. Be ready to go. But he says the way it happens, how quickly it happens, when you're on the housetop and you see this happening, don't go pack up. Now, mind you, this didn't have indoor stairs in their houses during this time. The stairs to the rooftops, the flat tops, where they would prepare food, where men would have their hobbies. You know, guys, when it says in, in the Proverbs, um, better to, uh, a man with many, uh, it's better to have many hobbies than to be with a contentious wife or to sit on the corner of a rooftop than to have a contentious wife. The corner of the rooftop is where men would go to do their hobbies. So when, when the writer of the Proverbs, this is a free little rabbit trail. I will get back on point. But on the rooftops, the corners where Hebrew men would keep their hobbies. And so in the Proverbs, when it says it's better to live on the corner of a rooftop than with a contentious wife, he's alluding to a man given to many hobbies is one of the ways that he's dealing with his wife or not dealing with her, right? So maybe it's time to press pause in the video games and get some counseling. That's a freebie. We'll push back here. All right. On the housetop, he says, hey, if you're on the housetop, don't even bother. If you see this happening, go downstairs and bleed. There's no time for you to pack up your gear and go. Now, some of you have a go bag. We've got a lot of preppers here. Some of you are like, that's why I keep it in my trunk, right? Okay, fine. But he's saying, hey, there's no time. When you, when, this, when you see this occurring, go down and don't enter your house and take anything out. and Let one who's in the field not turn back and take his cloak. The Hebrew men working in the field would take off their cloaks during the day because as it, heat, as it heated up, they would take off their cloak and then they would get back to work. He says, there's not even time to pick up your coat. Just go. It's that urgent. There's a sense of urgency. There's, there's, there's something that is not going to be good. He says, as, alas, for women who are pregnant, for those who are nursing infants in those days, it would be quick. It would be urgent, and they would need to flee. In AD 39, Roman Emperor Caligula declared himself divine and tried to set up his image in Jerusalem temple. And Jesus saying about the impending abomination would cause desolation must have been circulated with renewed vigor. So 
several years after Christ died and rose again, this started happening. And so, um, and then in AD 66, Josephus, who is a, a Jewish historian, not a Christian historian, he was a Jewish historian. He told about the, the zealots shedding blood in the priests in the temple. So one group of Jews would come and attack the, the, the priests in the temples in AD 66 and spill their blood in there. So that was a sort of abomination. But the new emperor, Vespasian, his son Titus, in AD 70, his son, his son Titus, who's a, who's his adopted son, he entered into Jerusalem in AD 70, burnt down the temple, destroyed the city, and crucified thousands of Jews. Remember, crucifixion wasn't solely a Jesus thing. That's what the Romans did to, to, to curse, right? Because the Jewish believed they're hung on a tree, they become a curse. To curse them and to exhibit great power over people, to, to quell any uprising happening. And this group of people were attacked vehemently by this guy, Titus. And in that moment, as their temple came crumbling down, as Jesus prophesied that it was, their world, as it were, was over. Their world of having a place to go and commune with God, to receive forgiveness from God, to bring sacrifice to God, to commune with Him, and to, in their own mind, make themselves righteous with God, their world came crashing down in A.D. 70, to the extent during that time where some of the apostles were still alive to witness that. So part of Jesus's Warning and guard for the Jewish listeners who he was telling this is what's going to happen for the believers, for those who would be made whole in Christ. They would then have instruction. They would then have a renewed trust in the promises of Christ. They would then experience the power of God as he calls, as he redeems, and then as he sends his disciples out. For the sake of the elect, he brings these warnings because things like this would happen. It would cause great confusion. And even then, those who were saved, those who were spared, verse 20, and if the Lord had not cut short the days, no human being would be saved, but for the sake of the elect whom he chose, he shortened the days. So even in righteous judgment of God's people, we see God measuring out judgment in proportion to his will. Because all of us deserve full judgment according to our sin. We must not lose that as we read apocalyptic literature. God remains the hero, even in tumultuous times. It goes on to verse 21, And then if anyone says to you, look, here is the Christ, or look, there he is, do not believe it, for false Christ and false prophets will arise and perform signs and wonders to lead astray, if possible, the elect, but be on guard. I have told you all things beforehand. Historically speaking, during that time when Titus came in and began overthrowing Jerusalem, wrecking the temple, which has never been rebuilt since in AD 70, during that time there were many Jewish leaders trying to rise up and lead people astray, trying to pull people away from affinity and affections towards God. There were many people who were doing powerful things and saying things that were very convincing. And even Jesus warned them, they will say things and do things that appear to be from God, but if you know the history and tradition of God and the Word of God, you won't be led astray. I think one of the greatest distractions that Satan has done in his church is to make us believe we are peacetime livers, that we're living in peacetimes according to our faith. 
The wartime living that God has in, in called us into and saved us into isn't one just of war with other humans. The ultimate time of wartime living is that this is not home and this is not our forever place. That the way things are ordered and the way things are structured are as they are for now according to God's will, but are not the way they will forever be. And so as we live into it, we don't become of it because if we become of it, we miss it. And that's a guard for us living differently, ordering our time differently, our children's upbringing differently, our money and our resources, ordering those things differently. I mean, by this time, the Jewish people after AD 70, they were fighting each other just for food. I know some of you watched The Walking Dead. And in The, in, in the Walking Dead, there are two primary threats, the zombies and other humans. When chaos ensued, there were multiple threats even within their own people because of desperation due to oppression and starvation. It was chaotic. And so Jesus is giving a warning to this group of people to see what would come to emphasize that He is then the fulfillment of the temple, that He Himself has become the temple, that through Christ alone can we be made right with God, through the sacrifice of Christ can we be forgiven by God, and through the power of God, through Jesus Christ, can we be reunited with God. Because throughout the biblical history that we have, we see that the glory of God will only rest in a holy place. The glory of God, the power of God, it will only rest in a holy place. God's judgment, though, is always intended to bring repentance and restoration. God doesn't need to make Himself feel better about sinners by destroying them. God guards His glory for our good by keeping His Word and doing what is consistent with His nature. Because God is holy, He must deal with that which is not holy. God is angry towards sin, but God has made a way for the sinner to be forgiven and accepted through His Son, Jesus. But God's presence, I think we're confused, friends, that when we try to live this holy life, for those of you who may be more bent towards rule following or legalism or doing the right thing for the sake of earning God's favor, you've got to understand your best efforts compared to the holiness and perfection of God are but filthy rags. And that by trying to use Christ as a springboard to righteousness rather than your only hope for righteousness will leave you greatly spiritually bankrupt before holy God. God's holiness in His presence will only be in a holy place. So the destruction of the temple was due and it was righteous and it was good. It wasn't made holy because they did right things and obeyed God. It was made holy because the presence of God. And when we see the destruction of the temple happen, it's because God willingly and knowingly removed His presence from that temple and allowed the destruction because every one of those groups we have talked about, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the scribes, the priests, they had made the temple an idol, a graven image of their glory rather than the glory of God. And God, through Christ, showed that His glory will not be shared or given to another and so God through his son Jesus crushed Christ and broke down his temple so that in three days his temple would be built again that his glory would remain and God's power would be true and the sacrifice would be fulfilled and that God would be both just and justifier 
But don't be misled. The glory of God will only rest in a holy place. The power of God will only be experienced in a holy place. You cannot make yourself holy on your own. Only by trusting in Christ alone can you be made holy. The second thing we see coming out of this is a church must live with the end in mind. Some people call it the long game. Most people, when they first meet me, they think I don't have any long-term plans because I fly by the seat of my pants. I'm entrepreneurial. I like to help start things. I like to get after things. You know, there's the, the parable or the story of the tortoise and the hare. The tortoise is a slow and steady one and ends a race, and the hare just goes after things and burns out and everything else. I really am a fuzzy tortoise because I do live and lead with the end in mind. I want to see pagans become church planters. And we've seen that happen. I want to see the lost who are radically lost and opposed to God be radically saved and transformed and made new to be ambassadors for Christ beginning now and forevermore. I want to see children who are being brought up in this pressure cooker of success and performance to know that they can never perform enough for God and that they don't need to keep trying, but rather that God has performed faithfully for him or her through his son Jesus, that they're fully adopted and accepted through faith in Christ, that they can live now freely because of that into their giftings. When Jesus tells the parable of the sower, the seed early on in Mark and other gospels, he gives different types of people where the seed falls. One is those who have hard hearts that the seed falls on hard ground. The bird comes, plucks it away, and immediately goes away and forgets what is heard. Then there's a seed that falls on the rocky and shallow soil. It, it, it grows up kind of like youth after youth camp. Or like, I love God, and three days later, they, they don't know God. They don't care. He tells of the fertile soil that grows 30, 60, 100 times, but there's one before that that I think many of us and our culture are threatened by that we don't even see. Jesus warns of being choked out by thorns. That our joy for Christ, our love for Christ, will be choked out by thorns. And here is how Jesus, our Lord, identifies those thorns. One, it's the worries of this life. And two, the distractive nature of wealth. The concern about money, the concerns about this life, so overwhelm us that it chokes out our faith and our affections and our love and our passions for Christ. And it robs us of the joy we were saved to have, the promises we have in days to come. That as these worries of life that only increase, amen? Even if you become more financially secure, there's still more con considerations to be made. I've never met anybody who's like, man, yeah, I'm a multimillionaire now. Everything's super easy. I, I've never met one. If you are one of those, first of all, welcome to Christ Community Church. Super glad you're here with us today. And this may not be about you at all. And number two, we do accept tithes and offering. <laughs> I've never met anybody who's like, man, I'm so rich, I have no distractions now. No, there's more responsibility. There's more attention coming your way from people who want your help for many different reasons. There's more temptation because you can pull the trigger on, on things you don't really want or need. I mean, but that's, that's how most of us order our lives. I get caught up in that sometimes. 
If I didn't have the, the gift of the helping wife that I have and some really good friends who keep me in check, it's super easy to get bought into that. Things I used to make fun of when I first moved to the Woodlands, I now do. Like I go out in public in workout clothes without even working out like all the ladies do. I'm partly joking, a little bit. But, I mean, I, that's a we're in an upper middle class area to an upper class area. The worries of this life, and, and most of us are ordering our lives for our children around the same false promises. That they will be happy as long as they can be successful. And we order our lives that way. And so when we start asking why, why are they involved in so many activities? Why are we pressing them so hard for education? Why, 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 why? You might say, well, it's to glorify God. Maybe, but probably not the primary thrust. I remember when I was in high school, like, and, and I went to Clements High School. Sugarland is like the woodlands with just less trees. Affluent, a lot of money. But these people, like, if the coach said, you need to come to football practice, they would take their private jets home and be at football practice. Right? I mean... Whatever, why? Well, why? Why was this? Well, because they love football. Well, what were they hoping in? Either to get a scholarship, to have something paid for college, or they were wanting to become successful and famous, or they thought it would be a good resume booster for their potential to get into college. All those things. I'm not saying those things are wicked, but unfortunately in our culture, those things become primary. And so the things of faith become secondary or tertiary or not existent at all as we're going through life. And hear me, I, I'm constantly... Challenge with that as well. Dude, I knew how to raise kids when I didn't have any. When I was a youth pastor, man, I knew exactly what y'all should do. And most of you are idiots. That's the way I, I, I didn't say that because I, I had some filter. And even when I had my first infant, Braylon, I was like, huh, man, these people are living for nothing. But now that I have a daughter that's gifted at dance, and like, well, we want her to be on the pre-professional thing. I'm like, well, I got to reorder my life. And Why? And so what we do with Braylon, we say, hey, do you love dancing? Do you like it? She's like, yeah, I do. And they're like, cool. Do you want to do this? Yeah. All right, we'll try to figure it out. But she knows she can come to us and say, I don't want to dance anymore. It's too much. But she also knows that most Sundays we're not going to go to dance until afterwards. So if they say you have a performance on a weekly basis on Sundays, we don't do that. Why? It's because we have the end in mind. What I want for my daughters and my grandbabies and Lord willing, my great-great-grandbabies, and so on and so forth, is that they have the end in mind. That there is a God who loves us, a God who made us, a God who redeems us, a God who's patient with us, a God who saves us, a God who restores us, a God who protects for us, protects us and provides for us. This sort of God, that is the goal. And if nothing else, if I help them as much as humanly possible to seek first His kingdom and righteousness and trust that all these things will be added to them as well, if I'm endeavoring to that end, then the promises of God in His Scripture will be that other things will fall in place as well. And so at the core of the way we order our lives is issues of belief and unbelief. I'm not saying that to judge you. I'm saying that with you. I'm saying it with you. When you hear me talk about money, I'm not here to get rich off your money. That's not my heart. But money will be one of the things that robs your joy in Christ because it gives you a false, salvific fantasy that that's what will save you. And it won't. It won't. I mean, our paper money actually has no real value. 
It used to be backed up by gold. It's now backed up by like zeros and ones on a computer somewhere. But we give our lives to it. With our time and our passions and our order for our children, we say we trust God and we believe His promises. But instead, we live as those who don't. I'm guilty of that too. But the church, us, we're the church. Not just the building, not the stuff. Like the buildings are relevant if we're not in it. We are the church and we must live with the end in mind. We must have a proper, healthy understanding that Christ has brought judgment and Christ will return to judge the living and the dead. Some of you are more worried about your emergency fund and your retirement fund than you are giving to your local body, local church. I understand where you're coming from. I understand that fear of provision, but you're being unfaithful to what God has called you to. You're giving first to your future rather than hoping in God's eternity. I'm not saying this to judge you. I'm saying to free you, to hope in God and trust in him and his ways. We prioritize those things. We think through our end and how we might go, or we err on the other side and don't think about it at all. Our priorities are whatever feels good today, and what feels good today may not feel good tomorrow, and so we're not thinking future stuff. And so our worship of God is temporary or like a drive through that when we need something from God, we go to God and try to get from God. If we're not getting from God, then God doesn't warrant our time or affections. And we have an immature view of God that direction. And so my hope for you isn't just that you sit here and say, man, that's me, I give up. Say, no, no, man, that's where I'm at. I'm not done yet. I need more of God. I need to be encouraged to that end. And now it starts making sense why Casey and the rest of the, of the team says, maybe you should read your Bible a bit. And maybe you should be in a community group. And maybe you should do life with other believers. And maybe you should prioritize kingdom things, not just so we have cool events, but because we value in things. And we live as those who are in wartime living and that we obey the call to live in community with other believers, even though we annoy each other. Getting the why behind it then helps us understand our vision to make disciples in authentic community. That's what God has redeemed us and called us to. is to make disciples within the context of authentic community. And the last thing I want us to understand from this is that Jesus is glorified, He's magnified, He's revealed and shown when we live into our new reality as His temple. So when Jesus saves us and forgives us, He is what makes us holy, not our behavior. Christ in you is your only hope for holiness before God. And so when I say that Jesus is glorified, when we live into, when we take ownership of our new reality as his temple, we understand that we are forgiven and we are made holy and we remain holy due to God's faithfulness towards us. And so when we live into that holiness, that's worship. When we mess up, we don't allow our sin to be our identifying marker any longer. But say, I've been broken free from that sin that leads to death and to shame. And although I've engaged that sin, I confess that sin, I receive grace for that sin, and I live differently moving forward. And so as we await the future coming of our Lord Jesus, and we look back to the judgment that He has brought on His people, as we long deepen our souls to be reconnected with the life giver, as we seek to live a holy life, living a holy life isn't making ourselves good enough for God or making ourselves better before we come to God. Being right with God is trusting alone in Jesus and then leaning into what He teaches and says. 
And so when it says put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness, turn away from. Don't hope in those things for your source of life any longer. Don't look to the things of this world to give you ultimate security. Be liberated. Be made free. Be hopeful in the person work of God. God has brought judgment. God will bring judgment. The holiness of His people comes from Christ in us. Even Paul, moving forward in 1 Corinthians 6, 19 and 20, brings a reminder as he's talking about sexual purity to people in the church of Corinth. He says, Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You're not your own. You were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. The transaction with God through His Son, Jesus, is one of ownership. And sonship and daughters. I don't know if daughtership is a word, but I was just going to throw it out there anyways. That His payment isn't impersonal, it's familial. He takes you from being enemies to being sons and daughters and loving you completely and thoroughly because of Christ in you. But as His people, you're no longer your own. Your money is no longer your own. Your time is no longer your own. Your reputation is no longer your own. You've been bought. You've been acquired by a price the Son of God. And we see pointing forward in 2 Thessalonians 2 that there's still yet more to come. Whenever we endeavor to talk about the mysteries of God through apocalyptic literature and talk about end times and last things, my prayer for us is that it wouldn't bring up this skepticism and contentious argument, but rather a God-trusting curiosity to know God more through it. That as we wait and look for our identity in Christ and look at His collected people redeemed for His collected purposes, that we would begin really living into the fact that the power of God makes holy that which is unholy through Jesus Christ. The only hope for us to be made holy before God isn't going to some building or some place and that building making us right, but rather by hoping and trusting in the person and work of Jesus Christ who lived the life we could never live fulfilling the laws and the prophecies of the Old Testament, dying a death that you and I deserve on the cross, both physical and spiritual, being utterly destroyed and killed and crushed, being buried by God's power three days later, rising from the dead, defeating sin, death, and Satan. After about 40 days, he ascends to the right hand of God and he will come back again. And so our only hope here, church, as his people, and friends that are here that are not yet trusting in Jesus Christ, I want you to understand that the power of God is the only hope to make holy that which is unholy through Jesus Christ. There's no place you can go or person here you can talk to that can make you right with God himself. The only way that you can be made right with God and live up to his standard of holiness is by trusting full on in the person and work of Jesus Christ. And if that's you today, then you simply cry out to God and admit to him that you have sinned against him that you have not lived up to a standard, that you've hoped in your own ability to be a good person or a right person. And I invite you, through the grace of Christ, to turn from that false belief and turn to the Son of God who is able to forgive and take away your sin, who then sends His Spirit to indwell you, to make you the temple of God, that we can come together as the people of God for the glory of God. Let's pray together.